following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Hey everyone, Chris here, and welcome to another week of Tales from the Association. Thank you all so much for the incredible support that you've shown the show. We actually peaked at number nine on the iTunes Sports podcast list last week, and that's just mind-blowing. We've got a good one this week, as my guest is Grant Long. As you'll come to see, Grant Long is an absolute gentleman, and talking to him was a pleasure. A hardworking player who maximized his potential on the court through an unrelenting work ethic, he's the type of player that basketball's younger generation should try to emulate. That's enough for me. Here's this week's episode of Tales from the Association, featuring Grant Long. Tales from the association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's not days. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they're gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the Association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horvadel. My guest today is a former Eastern Michigan star before embarking on a long and successful NBA career. Grant Long. Grant, thanks so much for coming on the show. Man, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Glad you gave me a call. Oh, I get pre- it done. Let's get it going. I appreciate you. So this, uh, this basketball story of yours starts at Romulus High School back there in Michigan. You had a strong career. What was the recruiting process like for you? You know what? It really didn't get bizarre mm-hmm. because um, I was really dead set on leaving the state of Michigan to go, you know, wherever I was going to go, continue my basketball and education. I was dead set on leaving the state of Michigan. So even though I got recruited by just about every school you could imagine, mm. all the in-state schools, Michigan's, the Michigan states of the world, I told him to stop calling. Stop, you know, it, it makes no sense for you to come to my games or call me or come by because I'm not staying in state to go to school. And uh, I was set to go to Louisiana Tech and okay. go out there for a college visit. And Carl Malone is actually the guy who, kind of, who takes me around on my college visit. He was there. He had sat out his freshman year, and he was taking me around on my college visit. So I was like, okay, this is where I'm going. Yeah. And in the witching hour – I decided on going to Eastern Michigan uh, because I got some help, you know, from my uncle John Long, who played in the league for 15, 13, 14 years. He finally got involved in my process, and he called me, like, at the witching hour. He said, I heard you're going to Louisiana Tech. And I said, yeah, I'm all set to go, or this and this. And he said, well, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you stay here? And he kind of explained some things to me and said, you know, it'd be better if you stayed around locally where, you know, you have a name for yourself and, so forth and so on. It pretty much made a strong argument to stay home. Mm. However, I'd already told everybody to leave me alone, all the in-state schools. <laughs> so you know, now what, what was I going to do? So uh, lo and behold, the one school that did not stop recruiting me was Eastern Michigan. So you know, they, were, they were the beneficiary of, of that, that conversation I had with my Uncle John. Yeah. So when I mentioned to people that you were coming on the show, the one question that almost everyone wanted me to ask you 
is who's the best basketball player in your family? You mentioned your your uncle's John Long, your cousin's Terry Mills. Who's the best basketball player in the family? No, it's not even an argument. Not on my pride anyway. I'm sure my Uncle John would argue, but I think it's Terry, my cousin Terry, hands down. It's not even close with what he's with, with the skill set that he had, you know, as a, as a ball player. He could, he could shoot it, he could pass it, he could mm. dribble it. Now, my Uncle John's one of the best shooters that I've ever seen. Um, but when it comes to the entire package of being able to do it all, you know, Terry, Terry was that guy. Terry was that stretch four, stretch right. five guy long before it was fashionable to call it that. Yeah, if he would have come along, you know, 15, let's let's leave it there, years later, that guy makes, I mean, he had a great career, but he makes a lot of money playing professional basketball. Oh, no, no question about it. For the services that he could provide at his size, no question about it. And, you know, on the same note, what do you think happens with you if you come along a little bit later? Because, you know, you weren't much of a three-point shooter. No, but I was one of those guys that, you know, you have to have on your team. I don't sure. care how good you are. Yeah, and I always kind of throw myself in the same mold as a Charles Oakley. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's probably the and a PJ Brown. I don't know if you remember PJ oh, Brown. Absolutely. PJ Miami. came along. Yeah, from Louisiana Tech, he came along. The guys like that, I was I was sort of in that realm. But guys like that nowadays, I mean, my career average was it wasn't a double double, but it was, you know, six seven rebounds and mm-hmm. eleven points. You know, guys are getting seventy million for that now. Yes, and and, and, I, and I had to pull teeth and sit out. You know, seven eight games in the beginning of the season to get twelve million. Yeah, you know they they were looking at me like, wow, you know, how can you ask for that money? And you know, you don't have the numbers to do this. And I'm looking now, and guys are doing less than that and getting triple of the amount that I was asking for. Well, look at uh, you know, just as that max contracts came along, look at a guy you played with later on in Matt Geiger who signed a monstrous contract yeah. with Philadelphia. He sure did. I mean, and you even you even mentioned before we came on Jim McElvain was one of mm-hmm. those guys that you've had on the show before. Jim was one of those guys who kind of set that thing this this whole scale of paying people kind of out of balance because I remember he got paid a lot of money um, I want to say he was with the Seattle Supersonics at right. the time, and Sean Kemp was on that team. And they were some statistic came out that per forty-eight minutes he would be he would average a double double if he mm. got to play forty-eight minutes. And somebody paid him based off of that 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 ratio. And I said, even when that came out, I was saying to myself, "But that's not a slight against John, uh, Jim McElvain. Surely, if they offer the contract, you take it. Right? But if you're going by per forty-eight minutes, well, there's a reason that he's not playing forty-eight minutes." <laughs> you know, that, 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 there's a reason you're talking about what he would do if he got a chance to play 48 minutes. Well, there's a reason he's not playing 48 minutes. Yeah. So how, 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 where, where does that rational thinking come in? You know, that he's not playing 48 minutes and the reason why. So, like I said, that when that came along, much like guys now, you know, with all these, you know, on a Tuesday night, this guy plays better if he shoots from the left side of the mm. floor. All these statistical numbers that come out about, you know, if the ball is passed five or six times, this guy's a better shooter. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm all with that, but I'm one of those guys that I go by the eye test. If you can play, yeah. you can play. It's that simple. Yeah, and I mean, Jim had this weird reputation as being the quote-unquote shack stopper, and I think that was a big reason he got that contract in, in Seattle. But, I mean, nobody's going to actually stop a guy like that. Right, right, and I agree. But, hey, you know, if, if they if they dub you that and, and, it, and it gets you a nice, hefty contract, then, you know, wear that badge proudly. He, I guess he's the big man version of who was it? Uh, Damian Wilkins, known as the the only guy who could slow down Michael Jordan. 
you, Damien. No, Gerald Wilkins. Gerald Wilkins. Gerald Wilkins. Gerald, Wilkins. Gerald Damien's uncle. Yeah, Gerald. Actually, Damien just signed. Just made the Pacers at thirty-seven. That's incredible. Wow, is he thirty-seven? <laughs> He's. I believe so. I believe that's a wow. that's a grandfather in the NBA today. That is. That is. Wow. Grant, what do you think of the way basketball has evolved over you know the last twenty years? Because I I grew up on those NBA on NBC triple headers watching watching Michael play Magic and, and the Lakers play the Pistons and the Pacers play the Knicks. And you mentioned Charles Oakley. Guys like Charles Oakley, like the Davis brothers, uh, you know, uh, Rick Mahorn, even, I mean, Rodman to a degree, do they fit in yeah. today's NBA? No, it really doesn't fit because that was a matter of the strong survive. Yeah. And, you know, if you were strong and you were not, not necessarily, and you had to be physically strong, but you also had to be mentally strong as well. And that, that those were the guys that that seemed to rise to the top. Those were the, the guys, the, the Xavier McDaniel's of the world, mm. who came in with that brute strength and mental toughness, and just trying to, you know, do whatever it took to win basketball games. You know, that was that was a grind out type of sport. But at the end of the day, the foresight of Commissioner Stern said, it's a brand of basketball that doesn't necessarily showcase the skill set sure. of certain players. So when you when you when it's about who's the strongest and who's the most intimidating, you almost take away the skill of the game. And he wanted to highlight more of the skill that the guys brought to the table. And I thought that was a pretty good idea because now you got a chance to see guys who could handle the basketball, who had the quickness that you couldn't negate by pushing them down or being stronger than them. So you had to really come with a pure skill if you were going to excel in the NBA after Commissioner Stern made some rule changes. Now I say that, but I also say at the same time, a lot of the younger guys were coming in the league, coming out of high school, maybe one year in college. And when you talk about playing at that level, you're talking about young kids coming in and playing against older guys who've been in the league, stronger, mm. mentally tougher. And I always go back to the example of it's like playing your dad or your uncle in the driveway when you're a young <laughs> kid. You're never going to win. You may be more talented than them, but you're never going to win because what does he do? Ultimately, he uses his strength and his size to just back you down underneath the basket, right. and he scores every single time if he wants to. Well, that's what it was when the younger guys started coming into the league. You could not see what they were all about. They, you couldn't see their skill set because of that, okay, the older guys were just stronger than them, and they would just mash them and push them underneath the basket. If they got going too fast, they would just knock them down. And it was no foul call. So Commissioner Stern had to say, hey, if these young guys are coming in here, we've got to show the basketball community why they've been accepted, why they're so good. You've got to be able to let them showcase their skill set. Hence mm-hmm. the no hand-checking rule. Now all of a sudden, if you can't hand-check a guy like Allen Iverson at his small size, his quickness allows him to get by defenders. Yeah. So now you get to see how quick Allen Iverson was because you can't hand-check now. So all of these rules were in place, I think, because, again, you're, you've got a chance to showcase the skill set of these players but also, they, you really wouldn't get a chance to see it under the under the old state uh, old set of rules. Yeah. Well, I'm a 76ers fan, and you talk about Iverson. I genuinely believe Iverson could have played in any era and been been spectacular in any area. He was not someone who was afraid of physical basketball. No, no, no question about it. He was as tough as they come. And I heard somebody say for for his size, it's probably nobody tougher. Or physically gifted at you know at six two six three that ever came along in the NBA and he, and he, he was very very tough and didn't mind contact as a matter of fact he went in there and he looked for it a lot of times so no you, you're right Allen Iverson is one of those guys that could play probably in any era 
Now, we'll get back to you in just one second, but I want to I wanna ask you another question that I think is interesting here. We have some recency bias uh, with the people who are talking about this now when we talk about you know, greatest player to ever play basketball, but you were there in the middle of it, and you saw these, you saw the Birds and the Magics and the Michaels, and I, you know, I, know, I know Kareem and all of those guys were a little bit before that, but in your mind, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? It's funny you say that because when I when I my first game my first year in '88 that was Kareem's last year, mm. so I did get a chance to play. I remember lighting up against the Lakers and I'm looking at there's Kareem, there's Magic, Worthy. I mean that that Jeez. whole arsenal, that whole Showtime Laker group in Miami, and I'm thinking, wow, this is. And at, at that time, of my rookie season, I, Magic Johnson's my favorite all-time player, mm. and I get and his posters were still on my wall at my mom's house, you know, my rookie year in the league. I got Maddie Johnson posters still on my mom's wall. Yeah. So it was amazing to be at jump ball with, with that group and knowing that Magic's poster is still on my wall at home. It was crazy. Just a, it was a, a, an unreal, surreal feeling to be on the floor with that group of guys, with the Lakers and being such a young player myself. But, you know, even with all that being said, that was Kareem's last year. He probably he played the first quarter, didn't play the rest of the game because mm-hmm. the Lakers were up, I think, you know, 19, 20 points by the end of the first quarter. And we lost our first 17 games in a row. So, yeah. but, you know, you go figure that out. But I, I would, I would to answer that question, there's been some great players to play. And I would be a, it would be a, a slight to say, not to mention the Oscar Robinsons and, yeah. the, you know, George Mikan's of the world and, and Kuzi and all those Celtics, those great Celtics. But, Love Kuzi. You know, uh, Kareem is by far. Head and shoulders wow. above the rest. When wow! You can, when you when you consider his body of work, there's no there's no basketball player that touches that legacy. What separates Kareem from Wilt in your mind? Uh, Wilt didn't win like Kareem won. That's fair. In high school, in college, and then on to the pros, he didn't win like that. You talk about a guy winning. Now I know Bill Russell won the eleven championships. Yeah, but nobody won. When I talk about the body of work. When it's when he when Kareem started playing basketball at Power Memorial High School in New York, they won. He moves on to UCLA. Go, I mean, going on a completely different, opposite ends of the coast, from east to west, and you already know what they did at UCLA. Mm. Un, unbelievable, you know, career there at UCLA. Then to go into Milwaukee and win the championship there, go to the Lakers and win there, and then lead the NBA in scoring all time. The body of work for Kareem. Is, is just unparalleled to me. You know, the all-star games, the MVPs, and everybody seems to think, well, he's got that great hook shot. Mm-hmm. Well, Kareem was so much more than that hook shot. He was a he was a dominant player defensively. This guy talked about playing above the rim. He was agile. You know, we, we a lot of a lot of us saw Kareem as he got older when all he did was the sky hook, which was unstoppable. But prior to that, this guy was blocking shots. He was doing everything. He played the complete basketball game. He could shoot from the outside. He was a phenomenal free throw shooter. He had the complete package for a seven footer. And then he developed a hook shot, like I said, which was unstoppable that just kind of probably added seven to 10 more years on his career (laughs) because he had an unstoppable move. You know, a lot of times I remember watching the Lakers and they would wait for him to come up the floor when he was, you know, in his 40s. He would wait for him to come up the floor, settle in the post, throw in the ball. There goes the hook shot, counting. So. You know, it was well worth the wait. And uh, like I said, when when you think of the whole body of work for Kareem, you have to say it's him. You know, I, I understand Michael Jordan had his greatness, and his when Michael Jordan's greatness probably doesn't go below 
the professional right. Mm. Outstanding pro. Get a couple of shots at North Carolina, understand that. But not the kind of impact that Kareem had. Nowhere near it. No college player. Pistol Pete comes to mind yeah. with his with his scoring, but they didn't win. They didn't win championships when Pistol Pete was playing. And he was scoring out of his mind, but they didn't win the championships. They didn't they didn't go on the runs of you know, not losing a game for an entire season. They didn't mm-hmm. do that. Only Kareem's teams were able to do that in college and high school. Yeah, you mentioned you know growing up being a having Magic Johnson be you know, be your favorite player. Well, my favorite player growing up is another guy that you talked about, and that is Bob Cousy. I wanted to be Bob Cousy so bad, and I mean you know I read the book, I watched every highlight I could get, I watched every tape I can get, and Bob Cousy just fascinates me. And he, I think he's actually my ultimate guest for this show. You know what, and I played for the Celtics my final season, and you really never get a chance to understand just how great the organization is mm-hmm. until you get, until you actually get there and you talk to some of the people that have been around, like Ed Lestert, one of the, he's the trainer there. got a chance to sit and talk with him about the about things. When I got there, Red Allback was still there. So I got a chance to meet him. I had never met Bill Russell. I, that was my 15th year in the season. I never met Bill Russell in my life mm. throughout my basketball travels. I was there probably two weeks, and I saw him maybe 10 or 15 times. He, just, he was <laughs> hanging around the gym. He was he was just coming in the locker room, hanging out, talking to us. And, and when they talk about Celtic pride, I mean, once a Celtic, always a Celtic. I can call Danny Ainge right now because I played one year with the Celtics, mm. and he'll take my call. He, he knows that I played. I was a Celtic. It, it, it just that 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 fraternity of Celtic players, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird, all of those guys recognize me as, as once a Celtic. So once you're in, you're in. And that's the great thing about being that, being one of the Celtics at any time in your career. You're always a Celtic. You always have that Celtic pride. So I understand what you mean when you say, you know, Bob Cousy is that guy. Because to me, they're all that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, the Celtics, are they're, they're just great guys. It's just great to be a part of that, that fraternity when, you're, when you finally become one of those Celtics. Yeah, you know, speaking of Magic Johnson, I believe you got to watch a, a guy last night who is getting some Magic Johnson comparisons in, uh, in young Ben Simmons. What did you take away from Simmons against the Pistons last night? Thoroughly impressed. Very, very impressed. I talked to their coach, Brett Brown, before the game, and he talked about how talented he is and how well he plays in the open floor, and they're still adjusting to him. You know, he's been there two years, but remember the first year he was hurt, so he didn't get a lot of time on the court with the guys but yeah. now when they recognize how fast he can get the ball up the floor they're playing catch up you know when he gets the ball off the glass sometimes he's going and coaches always telling the rest of the guys hey run with him he's looking to distribute the basketball if you run you're going to find yourself possibly with some easy layups or some open jump shots because he's such a, a, a guy that can push the ball expose your weaknesses on defense, find the open man, whether again, for whether it's a layup or a jump shot. Mm. He's got his eyes peeled for those types of things. So if you run with him, you know, you're going to be better for it. I think Coach Brett Brown said it last night. He said, hey, we're, we're trying to catch up with this young guy because we want to play around his talents, and his talents are playing in the open floor and his court vision to be able to find open teammates. I, I think he's got a tremendous upside, and as well with anything, when you talk about professional sports, he's got to stay healthy. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the big fellow on the team certainly fits that mold as well. Yes, uh, indeed. And he had a phenomenal night last night. I think it's 30, 30 points, eight rebounds. But mm. 
you know, he, he showed me some things last night that I was not aware that he had. And this, this, he, he's been worth the wait. I understand he was under minutes restrictions last year, only played, I think, 30 games, 31 games. But he averaged, he averaged I think, 20 and 8. Yeah. He averaged 20 and 8 in 25 minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, that tells you right there the guy's got a skill set. And again, if he can stay healthy, and there's a, there's a big reason that a lot of people are talking about the Philadelphia 76ers possibly making the playoffs this year. And, and those two are, are primarily the reason why. They don't even talk about Jaleel Okafor anymore. That's how good these two guys are. Yeah, that, that actually bothers me. I think Okafor got a little bit of a bad rap. And he, you, know, you talked about living in this analytics-based NBA world, and he just grades out so poorly when you look in advanced stats. But Okafor had an incredible rookie season. Granted, he played on a terrible team, but he played very well, seeing double and triple teams most of the, the season as a 19-year-old. And now he's just forgotten. Uh, you know, he doesn't yeah. get he doesn't get off the bench behind Amir when when Joel plays. It bothers me a little bit. I think he's better than that. I think he is too. And uh, he was so so well rounded coming into the league, and he was so applauded. And everybody was thinking, okay, this guy's going to do great things. And- like I said, they don't even mention his name when they, yeah. when you talk about the 76ers anymore. They're talking about all the guys that are filling in around Ben Simmons and uh, Joel Embiid. But like, like I said, to, to have a guy like Okafor on your bench is not a bad problem to have. I can guarantee no. you Brett Brown likes it. What did you think of Fultz? Because this, this shooting motion is a point of contention in Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I, I thought... You know he's got a. I think he's got a good upside. I think he's going to play for a long time because he's got some things that whether his shot's going or not, he's, that that'll still keep him on the floor. He's a solid defender. He's a good playmaker. I love his aggressive offense. But they're talking about this this shoulder injury that he's that he's got and he's recovering from right now, yeah. and he he's kind of compensating, maybe putting a little hitch in his shot or shooting it a little bit differently, not over to to as, as he's going through this process of rehabbing his shoulder. And even Brett Brown said this last night that he's concerned about him maybe not being able to get back to the original form because he's compensating for it right now. So he said the doctors have told him that that's nothing nothing to be alarmed about. He'll get back to his original shooting form, but he is just just trying to make things happen. Since he is going to play, you know, you can't be on the court and not shoot the basketball. So he's just trying to find a way to get the ball up near the rim. Now, I don't think he has the distance he once had. Um, due to that injury, so he's got to get that mid-range jump shot going, and that could be a, a blessing in disguise, the fact that he's working on his mid-range jumper as opposed to always casting up the three-point shot. So I think he'll be better for it in the end, but I do like him. I do. He's a perfect fit on that team. You know, when you got a guy like Simmons who wants to be a facilitator more so than a shooter, you know, you got a guy like Fultz who wants to shoot the ball, you know, he's he's going to get his opportunities. Yeah, well, I could fall down this rabbit hole of talking about the 76ers with you all day, but you have had a long career in your own right, so let's get back to you. Uh, Let's jump ahead. Junior season in college, big step up in production, almost 15 points a game, nine rebounds, 2.9 assists, 1.7 steals, and a block a game. You know, back then the draft was still dominated by seniors, but there were some underclassmen declaring. Did you consider heading to the NBA draft after that year? Absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. And it's funny because I remember uh, Bowling Green at the time was one of our rivals, and Jim Laranega was the head coach at the time. He was uh, He's the Miami Hurricanes mm-hmm. head coach now, but he was the head coach at Bowling Green, and I remember him making a statement and saying that, boy, this league is going to really miss Grant Long if he takes off and goes to the pros. He said that after my junior year, I'm thinking, ah, that, <laughs> that never even crossed my mind. Wow. But it was good. I was glad that he was able to say something like that because I respected his opinion. Because I, 
He was the guy that went to, he was a coach at Virginia. He had Ralph Sampson. He had, mm-hmm. you know, Rick Carlisle. So he had seen the NBA talent. And for him to be, to, to say that about me, gave me, gave me a lot of confidence that, you know, wow, this guy is saying that maybe he does, maybe, maybe there is a chance for me to play at the next level. So, right. but you know, that, that never crossed my mind about, you know, leaving after, after my junior year. So that 1986 draft, your junior year, that has one of the most unfortunate stories in draft history with the Len Bias situation. How familiar were you with Bias at the time? You know, I I knew of him. Uh, I, I At the time, my freshman year at Eastern, Ron Harper was a senior, junior or senior at Miami of Ohio. Mm. And I remember Ron playing, Miami playing, uh, Maryland at some point it was a huge poster that came around and Ron Harper was dunking on Len Bias and I was like wow who is this guy Ron's dunking on so I went and you know looked around and found out it was Len Bias and and I knew Ron was a very good player in, in college as well so I, Len Bias had to be you know right there with him and certainly when I found out and dug a little bit deeper I found out that he was a phenomenal basketball player so it was it was after that that, that Lynn Bias got on my radar as a basketball player, and I remember it like it was yesterday that I was in taking spring classes, spring or summer classes at Eastern, and uh, that morning somebody said Lynn Bias has you know died. I said, mm-hmm. "What do you mean, Lynn Bias? I do the set drafted." And uh, then the story came out. I, I I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. I I might have seen him play. And not in person, but just watched maybe four or five games before mm-hmm. he passed away. I've seen more games of him now, you know, since he's passed away. Sure. Just, just intrigued by how, you know, what what the the hoopla was about, and them saying that he was going to be, you know, the next Michael Jordan, maybe better than Michael Jordan. I don't know if that's true, but certainly the guy was a phenomenal talent. Yeah, I mean, the reality is we do tend to glorify people a little bit after they pass, and you know, you say obviously he's not going to be Michael Jordan, the greatest player at, at that time. What do you think his upside was in the NBA? And his upside at that point was his size and ability. Mm. Now, you know, I, I think Lynn might have been six eight, six nine, maybe. That's that's every day now in the NBA. That's not a novelty. You know, right. at that point, it might have been a novelty that he could, you know, run the floor and and, and jump as high as he did and and shoot the mid range jump shot probably out to the college three. I don't know if he had an NBA three range, maybe he would have developed it, but that was back then. That was, that was something that was special. Now, I mean, that, that those characteristics are a dime a dozen and guys that are six eleven and seven feet are doing it. Right. So, you know, like, like I said, I don't know how much that would have impacted the NBA, you know, the things that he could do. Certainly, you know, his, his work ethic, the guy could play. I just don't know how, you know, how far apart or how close, you know, the comparison to Michael Jordan would be. Sure. Yeah, you you talk about being intrigued by sort of what could have been there. I feel like we got robbed by, with a number of potential NBA stars in in the 80s and the 90s with players dying early. It wasn't just bias, you know, he's probably the poster child for that. But you also have Hank Gathers and Reggie Lewis and Ben Wilson from, you know, from Chicago. It's just it really makes you wonder what those guys would have been because there is so much hoopla around the, all three of them. Yeah, and, and you're and you're right. A lot of the the lore seems to be you know get bigger and bigger as the years go go that go around. And mm. you brought up Ben Wilson, and you know we being from Detroit, you know we heard about the Chicago players quite a bit because that's right in our backyard, and we all heard about Benji Wilson and you know how great he was and and, and all of those things and. 
I'd never seen him play while he was here. So I, I, you know, I watched a lot of games, you know, after, you know, that was available. But and and this is no slight to him. I know Nick Anderson and Nick Anderson, one of my former teammates, and Nick knew this guy very well. Mm-hmm. But I, I just don't know how great he would have been. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I because I, and, I, and I say that because not necessarily as a slight because when I say when I talk about comparing high school basketball players the first person I compare them to is my cousin Terry Mills sure if if if, if social media were around when he was coming through high school it, 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 he would have popped it he would have shut mm-hmm. it down that's how good he was so now when you tell me that this guy Ben Wilson was all of that and I compare him to my cousin Terry he, he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't that. He wasn't as good as Terry was. He wasn't that good, and, and when I compare him to Terry, now he was he was he was a decent high school player. Maybe he had great potential, but he wasn't there where Terry was. Terry was Mr. Basketball. Terry was Terry was everything. I mean, you talk about you had the J.R. Reeds of the world, the Derek Coleman's, mm. all of those people that were in those classes. He was head and shoulders above above them all. So when yeah. you talk about you know was it, was this guy going to be good? Terry was really, really, really good. Yeah. Really good. You make an interesting point about social media because we do tend to blow people up out of proportion well before they've earned it. I don't know how familiar you are with, you know, high school basketball right now and, and those the recruiting process, but there's a kid named Zion Williamson who is Yeah, so I've seen that and and I don't I mean, I tell you what, he reminds me of the way that he plays. I don't know if this is going to be a really old name. Chris Washburn went to, okay. ended up going to North Carolina State. Yeah. He was he was a dominant player like that. He was dominant like Zion, and and, and it appears that Zion has his head on his shoulders and all the right people around him. But he is dominating at high school. That you know, much like LeBron did, much like LeBron did in high school. He's doing yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't. I think. But he, I, I, think I, I have not seen him played. Personally, I've only seen the, the highlight videos, and obviously a highlight video only shows you all the, the great things that he does. Now, I don't know the competition that he's playing yeah. or anything like that or, or what his skill set is. Most of the time on the highlights, it's just about him you know, taking one or two steps on a fast break dunking on somebody. So mm-hmm. I don't know what else he offers. Yeah, I, don't, I just don't understand what he is, and especially what he is in today's NBA, because you're talking about a six foot five, 272-pound athlete has a mediocre handle. Now he's only, you know, he's a junior in high school, senior in high school, so you understand that. Can't really shoot. And these highlights... So he's 6'5". 6'5", yeah, he measured at 6'5". 6'5", 272 at the, uh, at something this summer. I forget what it was. That's a a two-guard at best. Right, and he can't shoot or dribble. And the highlights we watch, he's, you know, he's dunking on 5'9", 16-year-old little, you know, little high school kids. So I don't wow. know. Social I mean, media uh, destroys people. Even even Larry Johnson was at least six 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 seven, and he was, you know, he had a, he had a very good career. Yeah, it's tough to compare people to the exceptions to the rule. Like, his, is his best case scenario at that height Charles Barkley? I know that's a huge huge best case, but right, you know, right, Charles right, was right. probably six four in reality. Yeah. <sighs> It's, yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize he was only six five. I thought this guy was six eight, six nine easily. But you're telling me he's six five, man, and you know he's, he's still in high school. Yeah, maybe they're looking for a growth spurt. But boy, if, you, if, you, if you're already thinking about him at the next level of NBA, you wonder where he would play. There's no way that he could guard 
the two guys. I remember the late Robert uh, Tractor Trailer. He, mm-hmm. he had that same kind of deal, but Robert was at least six 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 seven. But he was, you know, like you said, about 270, 280, but he was primarily a post player and didn't have the mobility that he needed to stay stay in, stay with the guys of, that, of his era. And, yeah. it, and it ultimately cost him. He ended up having a short career in the NBA and ended up going overseas. Well, I'm having too good a time talking basketball with you here, Grant, and we're getting off track too much. Uh, back to you. Your senior year, uh, 23-10, 2.2-2, you're named MAC Player of the Year. What are you doing to get ready for the draft, and what, what range are you expecting to be drafted in? Honestly, the draft was not even on my mind. Wow. I, you know what? Because you, if anybody tells you that they know where – I mean, unless somebody comes up to you and says, hey, we're taking you in the fourth position, mm-hmm. you never know. And that was – it was never and, – and I'm glad I never put a lot of stock in, hey, I'm playing this to go to the next level. I honestly play it just because I love to play the game. And whatever happened at the end of my four years, that's just what happened. I would, cause that, that way I wouldn't be disappointed. I wouldn't be overexcited. I wouldn't put any pressure on myself to play this game because there was a scout there. I never knew any of those things if there were scouts there. I just played it. I just played the game. And, and, and I think I was better for it because there was no pressure to go out and do anything. Sure. We had never had a – at Eastern Michigan before you know, our team was there, we never made it to the 64-team tournament. So that was a goal of ours to, make, to win our conference and then to get to the 64-team tournament. And that was the 50th anniversary of that. And I remember it like it was yesterday because we all got to go watches for it. But that was a goal of ours that we set out to do when we, got, when we, when we began our season in October. We said we're going to win our conference and we're going to go to the 64-team tournament. So that's, that was the only thing. It wasn't about going to the pros. It wasn't about anything other than immediately doing those two things. And the one thing that I had in the back of my mind, because everybody kept saying, I mean, you could win Mac Player of the Year. And I said, wow, you think so? And I said, yeah, man. Because I, I didn't think what I was doing was all that great. Mm-hmm. And there were guys throughout this. I mean, there was the Danny Mannings of the world were out there doing their thing and, you know, overshadowing a whole lot of things that everybody was doing. So, you know, I didn't think anybody was paying attention to the little things that I was doing at, at Eastern Michigan University. But at the end of the day, it's a Division One school, and I'm a, I am averaging 22 points a game. And, uh, you know, as it stands, we won the conference. We, we, we win the MAC tournament, which automatically gives us a berth to the 64-team tournament. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then so the, and so the story is written, and, and that's pretty much what we, what we celebrated. And, and uh, it was great. It was great. I ended up winning the Mac player of the year. And I always, pe- I always tell people that uh, there was a guy that was supposed to win it. He was, he was in the running for it for like two or three years and he never got it. And my senior year, I ended up getting it mm-hmm. and it was Dan Marley. Oh, wow. So yeah, Dan Marley and I were kind of going neck and neck. He was, he was my guy that I was, you know, watching down the street at, at central Michigan. I was at Eastern Michigan. He was doing great things and I would have a good game. We ended up playing each other and we won that game. Uh, but I mean, you talk about the house was packed, standing room only, mm-hmm. and boy, it was some great times. You're taking me back right now. It was some <laughs> great, great, great times. But yeah, and, and to and to have to, to win the conference MVP was just like the icing on the cake after going to the tournament and, and winning the and winning our conference. Yeah, we talked about how that recruiting process went for you a little bit earlier, and how the local schools kind of dropped out when you told them, "Look, I'm I want to get out of here." Do you ever you ever think maybe if things go a little bit differently, you and Marley play together in college? No, no. I don't. I don't think I would have went to a Mac school. I would have ended up going to maybe a Michigan or a Michigan State. 
Fair enough. I don't think I would have went to a Mac school. Fair enough. So you end but up going. I mean, I, I'm glad it worked out the way that it did, but I don't think, you know, either one of those schools would have had an opportunity. And then you think about fast forward, you know, a year later, mm-hmm. or, or not a year later, but my my cousin comes to Michigan, you know, not soon after I go to Eastern. You sure. know, Terry Mills goes to Michigan, which is, you know, 10 minutes up the road from me, and they win a championship in 89. Mm-hmm. But I'm all, I'm already gone by then, but... I would have had an opportunity to play with him had I gone to Michigan. All right. So you end up going 33 in the in the 88 draft to the Heat. Are you relieved that this whole process is over? Are you a little bit frustrated by where you went? What's your thought process at this point? Oh, no, absolutely not. I am elated. I'm, okay. at, I'm, I'm at my neighbor's house across the street watching the draft because we don't have cable. Sure. So I'm across the street watching it at my neighbor's house, and the first round goes off, and you know, some some news cameras are there because they're thinking I'm going first round. I have no idea where I'm going. I haven't talked to anybody. I have mm. no idea what's going to happen. So I'm just watching. So uh, you know, the first round goes off, and I walk across the street back home, and I'm there probably 10 minutes, and we're just, you know, talking to the news cameras and this and that. And the phone rings, and it's it's the Miami Heat, and they said, we selected you in the second round. I said, oh, okay, well, great. Let's let's <laughs> let's, let's, let's make it happen. <laughs> And so you said, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch. We're just letting you know that we have selected you in the second round. And that was like, uh, I said, there was no pressure. There was nothing really because I, there was no great expectation. It was like, okay, if it happens, it's great. If it doesn't, I wasn't prepared for it anyway. I wasn't expecting it anyway. So, you know, it, it, it was it was like a wonderful surprise. And even with that being said, I knew, well, now the work begins because it's, it's right. still not going to be an easy task. But I was glad I was taken by the Miami Heat, even though at that time the Lakers were my favorite team. I had followed them for a long mm-hmm. time. They were my favorite team. Boy, to be able to go play in Los Angeles with, with Magic Johnson would just be, okay, that's that's the deal. That, that's it. You can take me home after that. <laughs> Isn't that kind of but, sacrilegious as a as a Michigan <laughs> guy? Well, I guess so, yeah. But, but, at, but at the end of the day, you know, as I'm always thinking, I said to myself, you know, I'm glad it's the Miami Heat okay. versus the Lakers. Because when you think about this, I'm a second-round pick. And the Lakers have Kareem Magic, mm-hmm. James Worthy, Byron Scott. I mean, they've, they on a 12-man roster, they've probably got, they've got 11 guys that they've, they've got guaranteed money that they are not going to cut for me. Mm-hmm. So the odds of me making that team were basically slim to none. Slim to none. They were all guaranteed contracts, and I knew that. So with the Miami Heat being an expansion team, you look at it this way. There's 12 or 13 opportunities for me to make that team. Nobody yes. solidified. They had an expansion draft, but that's not written in stone. You know, those those guys were the, basically the, 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 the guys that nobody wanted on their team. So yeah. they could be cut later. You know, so I looked at it as an ample opportunity to make the team with so many guys, so many new guys. Everybody's new here. Nobody's got a, rep, a reputation that says that they have to make the team and, you know, no no friends and, and uh, the politics of NBA basketball would not be as prevalent because this is a new team. Nobody's established themselves yet. This is a perfect opportunity for me to go in and establish who I am. And that's how I looked at it. That's how I was, I was elated about being drafted by the Heat. Well, as you alluded to, you find yourself in a really in- interesting position with that Miami team. You know, you're you're a second round pick, you're a rookie, and you're thrust into a very important role on that team. You get, I think, the third most minutes on the team as a rookie as a second round pick. You know, what are you thinking at this point? Are you thinking, wow, the the NBA this this isn't so hard? Look, at, I'm I'm a I'm you know, a second round pick, and I'm getting 29 minutes a game. 
what what I thought was, and I, I remember going to a camp called Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, played in a couple of postseason tournaments uh, before the draft. And I thought all these big names, um, I remember the guys from Louisville, you know, or the Herbert Crooks of the world and, and, and Purvis Ellison. I remember these guys, and I was saying to myself, wow, I used to see these guys playing on Saturday on TV. They're not that good. Right. They're not that good. I know Now I know that it's it's not necessarily how well you play. It's that it's the school that you play at. Sure. That 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 kind of gets blown out of proportion. Oh, this Danny Ferry is great. I played. A, I came across Danny Ferry. I said, "This dude is not good." Are you <laughs> kidding me? Oh, but he played at Duke. Now, now I get it. Now I get it. So everything is more sensationalized because of the school that they played at. All of these guys that I thought were just so good because I saw them on television, and then I got a chance to play them. I'm thinking these guys. I mean, I'm running circles around them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm literally. I'm not. You know picking myself up here. I'm just telling you that I'm thinking these guys were supposed to be all of this and all of they and some of them were all American. I'm thinking, wow, this, this is that guy that I saw on television. Right. Nah. And, and I, 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 once I realized that, you know, it was, it was all smoke and mirrors, so to speak, it was all embellished because of the schools that they went to. It, it was game on. It was game on. Nobody was going to outwork me. Nobody was going to be in the gym longer than me. It, it was, I'm I'm happy it worked out that way, but I recognize real early that you have to go play the game. You you can't just show up with your credentials because you went to a certain school, because Mm -hmm. you won this award, because you were nominated as an All-American and all those things. When you talk about trying out for an NBA team, nobody cares about that. Right. Nobody cares about that. They want to know if you can play and if you can get it done, and I understood that. So that first season is it's a struggle in Miami, as you would expect, and the next season is a, is another tough one. But you guys do add Sherman Douglas and Glenn Rice that season. You know, Ronnie Cycli takes a big step forward. Despite the struggles, you have to feel pretty good about this team's future, right? No, no question about it. When we when we got Glenn on the team, and then a year later we got Steve Smith on the mm-hmm. team as well. So it, it continued to get better, and the nucleus stayed the same. Like you mentioned, you got, you got Glenn, you got Sherman Douglas, you got Ronnie, uh, and you add Steve Smith to that mix. We had a very solid core of players, and you know, I, I thought we were just getting to that point where we were seasoned. We had, we made the playoffs. Uh, we lost to Chicago. Obviously, we, we get the eighth position, and the booby prize for that is you get to play Michael Jordan and the Chicago mm. Bulls for making the eighth position. But we, but we were better for that experience, and I thought we were getting ready to come into our own. And lo and behold, the team is getting ready to be sold. Right. So they were trying to, you know, dump all the high salaries, and so all of a sudden you start breaking up the team to make the team more presentable uh, for for sale. So we never really got to explore just how good just how good our group could be. Yeah. Uh, well, I just want to take one step back. One uh, where we are right now. That third season, another step up, and uh, but it's a tough year. Uh, you add a guy who, bizarrely, is one of my you know favorite players of all time because I saw him score fifty three points against the Warriors for my Sixers, hit nine threes, just was unguardable. And that's Willie Burton. What do you remember about <laughs> Willie? Oh my goodness, Willie! It's funny you said I talked to Willie about three days ago because Willie is starting to get into broadcasting now, and he okay. was calling me for some advice just a couple of days ago. But uh, Willie, 
talk about a guy with, with the advertisement, he would let you know how good he was. Mm-hmm. He had the gift of gab. He could tell you, hey, I'm, I'm going out here and I'm going to score 30 points, and he would do it. And very talented, um, you know, one of those guys that just had so much talent and never really got a harness on it until later on in his career. I think he went overseas to play, but he had some, some other issues that he was dealing with we found out later. But, yeah. you know, certainly a very talented player in his own right. And real short story, we were playing, we're in Miami, we're playing Chicago. And at that time, each team went throughout the, uh, through the tone into the locker room together. So we were walking out, and we had we had Chicago at, in Miami. And I think Michael Jordan's got maybe seven or eight points at halftime, and Willie's coming through ahead of Michael Jordan, and and, and Willie's telling me and Brian Shaw and Steve Smith, you know how 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 much he's defending Michael Jordan, how he's locking <laughs> him up, and this and this and this, and you know, unbeknownst to us, that Michael's behind us about three feet, walking oh. right behind us. So we go into the locker room. Willie's pretty happy about it, and you know, just bragging about how he's locking them up. So mm-hmm. we go out to begin the third quarter, and we're all standing at half court, Steve Smith and myself. And Michael walks over. He said, "You know what? I was going to take it easy on you guys, but I heard your, I heard Willie talking smack. So yeah, just be prepared for this." And I think he went on to score just like thirty points in the second half. Game over. <laughs> Sounds right. It it, 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 it it was crazy that that he that. You know, to, to hear that, to hear to, that he heard Willie say that, then to come out and just turn it up a level that we could never even get to and, and, and get 30 points, 30 or so points in the second half and the Bulls win the game going away. Based on, you know, being revved up by Willie, that's one of the famous Willie Burton stories. But I thought Willie was a very talented player in his own right. Yeah, I have an irrational love for Willie Burton. Uh, it's uh, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to anyone else. But that is uh, one of my fondest memories of, of my childhood as a 76ers fan just watching Willie get 53 out of nowhere and that is now that we talk about that I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to step up my efforts to get him on the show because I think Willie would be a spectacular <laughs> guest absolutely and he's doing some great things right now I mean he's involved with the school systems now and he's doing some really wonderful things for kids and uh, he's, he's come a long way I'm really really happy for what he's doing so, as you say, Miami's getting ready to get sold. You guys uh, just are on the cusp of a breakthrough that never really comes. You're traded to the Hawks with Steve uh, for Kevin Willis. Are you yep. uh, you excited about this new opportunity? You kind of frustrated that you never got to finish things in Miami. Well, uh, I thought I'd be a lifelong Heat player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really did, but you know, I also understood the business of being traded. Uh, it happens, and once they started, you know. Glenn Rice is gone. Some other guys are gone, and Ronnie Cycli's gone. And you're just thinking, okay, the, the, our days are numbered here. You know, yeah. obviously they are not trying to keep a team together to win. To win, they're trying to dismantle the team to make it more plausible to sell. So we under, we understood that. So it, it was it was just a matter of time before the the, the guys that were under long term contracts were were traded away. So we we understood that. So again, it's it's it's, it's one thing to be traded. That's okay. The bad thing is when you when you're trying to get traded and nobody wants you. Yeah. Uh, that's that's when you that's when you're in a bad position. So we we felt pretty good about it. We were still young, and and again the Hawks wanted us. So that that that's a great deal. We had an interesting story behind that. That trade that took place. We were C. Smith and I were. I remember Kevin Lockery getting on the plane. We were in Phoenix, and Kevin Lockery gets on our team plane. He says, "You guys might want to call your agents. Oh. I think there's about to be a trade." So we were in Phoenix probably three days before that, and uh, the Hawks are coming in 
to play Phoenix. So we, we probably stayed in Phoenix like six or seven days. It felt like we were there for an eternity. But we were on the runway, and uh, we we're talking, and the agent says, you know, you guys got a choice. Pat Riley wants you to go to New York, or Lenny Wilkins wants you in Atlanta. Well, I was already searching for a home in Atlanta. I just wanted to move there. You know, right. I wasn't interested in the team or anything like that. I was just interested in moving to Atlanta. So Steve Smith and I were just sitting there talking. We said, okay, we'll call you back in 10 minutes. So we're sitting mm-hmm. there talking, and we, and we had heard all the horror stories about now. We're just young at that point. If I had it to do all over again, I would probably go play for Pat Riley. Mm-hmm. But we were sitting there as young players and saying, man, we, we heard the horror stories about Pat Riley making the run, you know, 15 miles before practice even starts. He practice, you practice three hours, and then you go watch film for two more hours. You're there for six or seven hours in a day. And we were like, man, that's not a place we want to be. Was and, there ever uh, any talk so we, of who you would be traded for? No, we never knew who we would be traded for. Never knew that. Because actually Steve Smith and, and, and Kevin Willis were great friends. Obviously, they went to Michigan State. So they were, mm. they were great friends. But neither one of us knew who we, who we would be traded for. So those next two seasons, you play well. The team gets the 46 wins one season, but things never seem to totally click. Are you getting worried that you're never going to be on that great NBA Finals-type team at this point? Not really, but I, because I took the same attitude that I had playing in college. Sure. Just play, just play, have fun, do do what it, do do everything that you are in control of. Do it, and at the end of the year, whatever whatever has, has happened is going to happen. You know, I always try to say, you know, what there's nothing more that I could have done, and I'm and I'm more than satisfied with that. Whenever if I can answer that question at the end of the season, is there anything else that I could have done? And I say no. I'm, I can I'm, I can sleep at night. Whether we whether we won in the playoffs or didn't win in the playoffs, was there anything else I could have done? And when I answer no, I feel, I I don't have any issues about you know maybe I should have played for this team or played for that team. I had a ball playing for every team that I played for because sure. I just played because you know yeah you want to win, ultimately you want to play for a championship, and I always tried to do that. But at the end of the day, ask any NBA player what he loves about it the most is playing against the best competition. Yeah, well, and, and, and sometimes that's what we got a chance to do. We we kind of yeah, live in an era I, I, where all the best guys now team up to beat the other best guys who have teamed up. Yeah, that, that's true too. And I mean, if you look at a guy like Kobe who's got five rings, boy, just just to have one, you yeah. know, look at it now, just just to have one would be just just awesome. But I, mm-hmm. I, but I still say, nobody loved the game more than I did. Nobody sure. gave it they gave it what I gave it, and I, 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 that's what I, that's what helps me sleep at night. I mean, I love this game of basketball. Yeah, you you did fine, Grant. I wouldn't be upset about anything. (laughs) You did fine. So things have to be looking up here. 96, and you are now a Detroit Piston. You're back home in Michigan. You're teamed up with Grant Hill and Joe Dumars, and and Terry Mills is on that team. You guys win 54 games. This has to be heaven at this point. Oh, man, straight from heaven has to be. And I I think that year, we uh, Otis Thorpe was on that team. We had a we had a beast of a team, and we won maybe our first. Uh, let's just say we won thirteen out of seventeen games. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to Joe Dumars. I said, "Hey man, does it, does this feel like we're going to win a championship?" <laughs> and he, and you know, I mean, because he had won two already. I said, "Well, do you, on the on that way, the, the year that you won the championship at the beginning, was there any indication that you would win?" He said, "Nobody really knows." You know, because then anything could happen. You could win 17. You could win, you know, 17 out of 20 games. It doesn't mean you're going to win. He said, you just never know. He said, but it does feel good. I will admit to you that it does feel good, like we've got a chance. 
And I, after that, that whole year, I went saying, boy, this is, this is going to be the year. This is going to be it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, it, it just you talk about the, the, the train coming off the track. I remember we, we go into oh. Seattle. We go into Seattle, and we lose. Yeah. And at the time, Doug Collins is the coach. And he comes in, and he, and he pretty much lays all the blame at the foot of the big guys. And I'm one of those big guys. Mm-hmm. He blames he blames the loss and, and puts it at our feet. So and then he says, okay, let's bring it in. And, he, and I'm, I'm give you I'm give you everything that I said. And I said, wait, I got I got something to say, coach. And I said, you know, here we are. We've won our last you know 13 out of 17 games or so, and not one time did we ever come in and give the big guys credit for winning. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's fair that we blame the big guys for losing when we lose. You know, we win as a team and we lose as a team. It's nobody's fault. We all lost and we all win. Yeah. And I didn't play another game. Oh, well, yeah. Doug Collins is uh, notoriously difficult to play for sometimes. Yes. I didn't play another game after that. That's incredible. That's, yeah. that's, that's incredible. You know, but that that is a team full of just great people. When I... When I've spoken to people on this show, the three names of the superstars who are just flat-out spectacular people and spectacular teammates that always come up are Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Webber, and Grant Hill. Absolutely. Uh, and it's funny you said it because I see all of those guys. Grant's been the only teammate that, that I've had that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I know Chris because Chris grew up in Michigan where I grew up, and I've watched Chris throughout his high school and college career. So I know Chris very well. And you're absolutely right. And Shaquille O'Neal, I just just in playing against him and, and talking during the times that we've played, I have a lot of respect for him, and I think it's a mutual respect. But you are absolutely right. Both, all three of those guys are, are A one guys. When you talk yeah. about teammates, I heard a I heard a story. I think it was Jeff Trepanier. He's talking about being a, a young guy on the Cavs, you know, undrafted second round pick, that kind of thing. And, you know, Shaq would just come up to the young guys and just hand them money saying, you know, I know you guys don't have a lot here. Here's some cash. Go enjoy yourself. Like, that's crazy to me. Wow. I remember this. The story goes that he, he actually bought Martin Madsen a car. I bet. When he was with the Lakers. He, just, he bought him a car as a rookie. So, listen, man, hold on to your money. You know, you're going to need it. Uh, he, he bought him a car. It wasn't like it was a Mercedes or anything like that, but mm-hmm. he bought him a brand new car. Yeah, I don't care if you make two hundred million dollars over your career. That's still an incredibly nice gesture. Yes, it is. That's that's incredible. You know, that that as a teammate, you know, you don't have to do that. That's your teammate, sure. But you know, to be able to do something like that, you know, coming from coming from a guy like Shaq is is big. It's huge. So we're getting down to the the latter stages of your career here. After that, uh, the second year in Detroit, you end up back in Atlanta. How did that come about? Um. It was one of those things where, it, it, and that's a whole funny, a funny scenario because when playing for Detroit, we ended up we were playing Atlanta in mm-hmm. the in the first round of the playoffs. So I felt like Deion Sanders when he played for San Francisco and then went over to Dallas. So mm-hmm. I'm playing for Detroit. We we get Atlanta in the playoffs and we beat them. We we get them and we we beat them in the playoffs. The next year I get to Atlanta and we play Detroit in the playoffs and it's Joe Dumars final season and we ended up beating. Detroit to go on to the next round. So it, it was pretty cool that while playing for Detroit, I beat my former team. Mm-hmm. I leave Detroit, go back to Atlanta, and beat my former team again. It was pretty good. Pretty good. 
after that, a couple of years with the Grizzlies, uh, first in, in Vancouver, then Memphis. How do you look back on that time? One of the better times that I've had throughout my 15 years. Vancouver was uh, a brand new experience. Um, the knowledge of, of, of sport, of the sport of basketball, wasn't great because obviously if you're in Vancouver, you're thinking hockey right. and, you know, and Canadian football. So basketball was, you know, third, you know, way down the totem pole as far as, you know, the knowledge of the sport. But the fans came out. It was, it, I wouldn't call it a novelty. They, they really wanted to learn about basketball. They enjoyed the players being around. It, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a great relationship. I, of all the teams that went away, that's the one I felt like should have stayed. Yeah. Because it was, I thought they got the support. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a great place to be. It was a great country. People were fine. It, 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 was, it, was, it was one of the, the highlights of my 15 years. Sure. And finally in and 2000, to, sorry, go ahead. And then, and then to segue that into, you know, obviously the, the Vancouver Grizzlies moving over to being the Memphis Grizzlies to make yeah. that move from Vancouver to Memphis on Beale Street. I had, I had family that lived in Memphis, so that was a cool oh, nice. transition for me. So it, it was great. That, that whole transition was, was, was pretty good for me. Those are two very different towns. Very different <laughs> town, but and I hearken back to my experience because Memphis was a was a brand new franchise. Yeah. I'd gone through that brand new franchise before when I when I initially got into the NBA with the Miami Heat, so I understood what that transition was going to be like getting into a new town that that's just getting professional basketball and you know kind of what to expect, what to look for, that kind of stuff. So I already knew that because I'd already gone through that experience with the Miami Heat. Did you get into country music while you were down there in Memphis? Not into country <laughs> music, but I did get into the blues. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I got uh, into the blues music. Uh, so finally, 2003, you're with the Celtics. Uh, at this point, did you know it was kind of time to move on from basketball? No, I did no. not. I mean, that was, that was year 15, and, you know, if it was up <laughs> to me, I would have I played. I mean, I literally, I was, I was playing. You know, I, I was yeah. playing in, in year 15. You know, I mean, if it, it would have been different if I was, you know, a guy that would just primarily rolled the bench in year 15. I wouldn't be looking forward to year 16. But I played. Mm -hmm. I played. And all of a sudden, done. Nothing. Yeah. You know, Is so I, I was, no I was interest looking or forward to year 16. I, you know what? I had some interest, and um, the interest came from Larry Brown. And with a funny, you think you're Philadelphia 76ers. Okay. Uh, Larry, Larry called me and he said, Hey, listen, you know, I want you to come down. I want you to, you know, this and this. And he gave me this whole song and dance. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of respect for Larry Brown. He's a very, very good coach. But he, he said something to me that I felt was almost insulting. He said, No, you're going to have to make the team. Oh. I said, It's year 15 for me, Larry. I, I don't think I should have to make the team. You know what I can do. Either you want me on the team or you don't. Yeah. You know, you, are, you know what I can do. I've, I've done it for 15 years. So either you want it or you don't want it. I'm not coming in to make a team because I already know what that's going to be like. Get me there and draw us throughout training camp. Get me there the last day and say, well, we don't have room for you. Right. That's too, that, that, work, that work is too hard for me to do that, and then you cut me. I'm not going to do that. So we, we couldn't come to an agreement. And, and then right after that, I had an opportunity to do some broadcast work, and I thought, mm -hmm. wow. You know, if, if I was going to continue to play NBA basketball, it would, more than likely it would be maybe another two years, maybe another two years. That would give me 17 years. That would probably be it for me. 
So do I make a, I make a decision? Do I, do I try to play for two more years or do I start another career in broadcasting? Because in, in, in the broadcasting realm, those jobs just don't come up every year. Yeah. So I'm thinking, why well, do I, do I, you know, push aside those, you know, holding on for those two years or to start a new, you know, a new television career. So when the broadcasting opportunity came up, that's, that's, those are the two things that I weighed. You know, do I try to play for two more years or do I start a new career? And I, just, I decided to start the new career. I didn't even try to go play basketball anymore. I had some, uh, some overseas opportunities. I didn't even explore those because I just said, I'm going to go head first into this, to this broadcasting thing. That's interesting because that was actually what I was going to ask you next. You know, you were you were still playing at this point. You were still in good shape, still producing. It seems like if you wanted to go play overseas, as a guy who loves playing basketball as much as you do, you might have had another five, six years over there. Yeah, but it, the one thing I've, I've had several throughout my career, I had I had the opportunity to go play overseas, and I just always felt that. You know, the NBA was the best place to play. And sure. even though I, you know, sometimes, it, you know, you can make more money over overseas, but at the end of the day, everybody that understands basketball knows that the best players are playing in the league. And I wanted to be one of the best players. I mean, I, I tell right. people this all the time. For 15 years, there's there's maybe 350 players at capacity in the NBA every year. Can't get any more than that. Mm-hmm. And for 15 years, I was one of those 350 players, the best. For 15 years, I was one of those 350. I'm not with it. That when you say I'm playing over in Israel or playing in China, that's not counted in the 350 of the best NBA players. Mm-hmm. So I always wanted to be in that regard as one of the best. And playing in Israel, even though you may make might make more money, you're not considered the best. Sure. When I go, when I go. When I, as an NBA player, if I walk into a whatever it may be, and and the, the red carpet is rolled out for me because yeah. I'm an NBA player. If I'm playing in China and I walk into that same restaurant, nothing. Yeah. yeah. Nothing. And so I, fact, I, I like I like that being part of the NBA. That's understandable. That's completely understandable. So, you had the broadcasting opportunity. You end up with the the Thunder in 2008, and then. 2014, you're back in Michigan covering the Pistons. Is uh, this has to feel like we've come full circle at this point? Really, I mean, and and to be at home, uh, you know, because I was doing broadcasting for a long time. I started out with the Atlanta Hawks, hmm. and um, then ended up going to Oklahoma. But then my mom had never really saw seen me do any broadcast. She heard about it. She, you know, she peeked in every night. She really didn't understand what I did. Yeah. So it was great to be back home where she could watch and see exactly what I did. I mean, literally, she'll call me if I'm, I'm I mean, my phone might be vibrating right next to me on my hip while I'm actually broadcasting, but she mm-hmm. still doesn't get it. When she sees me on TV, I can't answer the phone. So <laughs> it's like she's calling me and I get a voicemail. Hey, I'm watching you right now. You look good. You're saying this and you're saying that. Or your tie looks good. Maybe straighten your hanky out. I mean, that that kind of stuff is, you know, always says stuff like that. So, so from that regard, it's, it's just great to be, you know, close enough where she can see me and talk to me every day. And, you know, I can go by and do things with her. You know, I get to see all my family is here. So it, it's been it's been a great relationship so far in the last three years. Do you see this being a long-term thing? Or what do you think is next for you? 
I think broadcasting is a long-term thing. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, I've been trying to break my break into the coaching ranks, but I've had no luck whatsoever. It's been oh, you know the broadcasting that keeps giving me the opportunity. So, uh, and I and I kind of got into broadcasting, thinking that I would have you know close contact with coaches that I would be able to establish a relationship with, and perhaps maybe join somebody's staff. But it just hasn't worked out that way. So. Oh, I continue to do broadcasting. And, we got to put in know, that call to uh, to Trader Danny. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> and, and I've already I've already done that. I've already done that. I've talked to Brad Stevens a few times. Wow, yeah, it's, what it's a great just, coach! It's, just, it's it's no room for me there. So, and, and I and I have to honor that. You know, I will, yeah. you know, Danny's always been forward with me. He's been great. So I I can't. You know, I just have to wait. Just have to wait my turn. But at some point. At some point, I got to tell you that the coaching will probably be one of those things that I just say, eh, I'm done with it. But I really want to give it a try because I don't want to get up in age and say, well, I wish I would have tried coaching. You know, if I'm good at it or not, I wish I would have tried it. You know, yeah, it's, that, you know, that's the thing. Coaching, coaching's fun and it's interesting. Obviously, I've never coached in the NBA, but I coached, you know, my local high school CYO team and a couple of other teams for, you know, 10 years. And it's just a great experience. And it, it, it takes a commitment, but you know, when you when you, you you get it together and you and you see the whole plan come together, it's a, it's a it's a beautiful thing, you know, to be around it. So I do I do want to do, and I'll, I'll continue to try until I feel like I've exhausted it and there, there's nothing else that I can get out of it. Then I'll just try to continue to do broadcasting. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time, so let's start to wrap this up and uh, let's quick word association game. I'm gonna. Give you a player's name. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind when you think of this guy. Let's start with Ronnie Cycli. My first experience with a big-time player. How about uh, Cousin Terry? Greatness personified. Sherman Douglas. The donut guy. (laughs) How about Glenn Rice? Pure shooter. Brian Shaw. One of my best friends. Steve Smith. Best guy you're going to meet. Man, you played with, you played with some names, Grant. Uh, so this one's interesting. How about, uh, how about Baby Jordan, Harold Miner? What word am I looking for with him? What do you mean? He is... He is like... Uh, like... What word would you use to describe Howard Hughes? A recluse? Yeah. He wasn't a re- he wasn't a recluse. He was the he was uh How about enigmatic. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, perfect. You stole the word. There it is. That guy that guy averaged like twelve points for his career and played for like four seasons. It never made sense to me. Yep, exactly. But a How good about- dude. How about a minute bowl? Professional. Mookie. Love to golf. <laughs> Craig Elo. Henry. <laughs> well, how about Christian Leitner? Misunderstood. Yeah, he's uh He's got an interesting public perception about him. Very misunderstood. How about uh, how about the little man Spud Webb? Always the same every time you see him. 
Grant. Which Grant? Grant Hill, sorry. <laughs> uh, exceptional talent and good dude. Rick Mahorn. The uncle I never had. <laughs> no place for him in a modern NBA, that's for sure. How about, <laughs> he's getting, well, Rick got in a fight in a WNBA game, right? I hope not. He, he uh, broke up a fight, I think, in the WNBA uh, game. You know, something happened. Something, something happened that when you hear about it, you just say, oh, right, that sounds right, it was Rick Mahorn. Yeah, it sounds like Rick Mahorn. How about Brawling. Kenny Smith? Kato Kalen. <laughs> Describe that. And, and I, I say that because he, he, like, he, he always, as a teammate of mine, he always borrowed everything. Let me borrow your headphones. Okay. Let, let me borrow this. Let me borrow that. He borrowed everything. <laughs> uh, how about Joe Dumars? Professional, stoic. Okay, let me mental. let me ask you a question about Joe. I've heard some other people suggest that, you know, maybe by the end of his career, he was playing basketball because it was his job, not because it was what he he loved anymore. Do you think there's any truth to that? I think he always loved it, but I, I also think that you can always learn from it. He was in a position that perhaps he was learning a lot more that at that point. Because if you think about Joe's career. He came in doing work. I mean, he came in as a as a basketball player, doing so many things, and it was all about basketball, basketball. But so, how much how much of that? How how can you learn about the business of basketball when you're playing it so much and while you're mm-hmm. such an integral part of it? I think he took maybe the last couple of years to learn more about the basketball, and because you, you there's one 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 stance where you you know your teammates as teammates because you're playing with them. Mm-hmm. But then it's a, as, when you're sitting in a different seat as a general manager or a president, you have to know them in a different way. You can't know them as perhaps your teammates because teammates do different things that only teammates do. But as when you're sitting in a general manager's chair, you can't be the teammate anymore. You've got to be the general manager. Right. So I think he was, he was learning how to differentiate the two and also learning how to be a general manager and understand what the nuances of what the players expect from the general manager and so forth and so on. He was he got that firsthand because he was still playing, but he understood in the back of his mind, or he maybe perhaps in the front of his mind, that he was getting ready to be a president and general manager, and he needed to learn needed to learn just about everything he needed to know, and he was taking all of that in. That's interesting. So maybe you know, consciously or subconsciously, those last few years were sort of an apprenticeship for the next step. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, how about the Kembe? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. that's the reaction. It's such a, such a good guy. Humanitarian comes to mind. Uh, how about Jerry Stackhouse? Love Stack. What well, what is it about Stackhouse you like? Original. Um. Has the persona at the time had the persona of a, a tough guy, um, almost unbehaved. Mm-hmm. But when you when you when you find out when he, when he's your teammate, you understand that he he comes from very good parents. He knows exactly what he's doing. He may have a perception of this guy, but he's he's been raised right, and that's that's what I came to understand about Jerry. He, he's very respectful. Uh, I like him a lot. How about Mike Bibby? Team Dime. Uh, 
very very good player, very good teammate. Uh, when I when I saw Bibby, he was one of those guys that very unsure of himself. Had a lot of talent, but unsure of himself at the time. And I think, he, but I saw him very early on, and I think he grew into that and understood that he was a very good player. Hey, are you uh, you watching this big three at all? I have watched. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to play in it. What uh, just... I was going to be I was going to be on Rick Mahorn's team, okay. and the uh, six months prior to that. I was playing uh, in a pickup game, got poked in the eye, and had a detached retina. So that derailed oh. my big three, big three year debut. Well, you say debut? That's interesting for phrasing. I, I would have been, I would have been a champion for the first time. Rick's <laughs> team ended up winning. How about that? His team ended up winning, but I couldn't play because I had got poked in the eye, had detached retina, and proceeded to have four other surgeries after that to try oh. to repair it. Well. Uh... Well, first of all, I hope I hope everything is all right now. But you used the word uh, "it delayed your debut." Is there any thought to potentially playing in the future? No, no, no. There's no way that I would play now. I, I don't have full peripheral in my eye, and I couldn't. Oh, I'm sorry I to hear that. There's no way that I could go out there and be effective. Well, that stinks. I'm I'm sorry to hear that, Grant. Let's uh, last couple of names here. How about Sharif Abdurrahim? Consummate professional. This one I'm I'm very very interested in maybe more so than any other name Felipe Lopez. Felipe fun. Absolutely Why didn't it fun. work? I I enjoy him being my teammate. Um, classic case of too good too early. Yeah. yeah. Too good too early. How about uh, how about Pagasol? I think you had a rookie Pagasol. Pagasol was my rookie in Memphis. That's right. Taught, uh, talented, loved the process in which he went through. Mr. Vin Baker. Solid player. Glad to see him turn things around. Uh, up until up until he retired, my favorite current NBA player is uh, Paul Pierce. The truth. The truth. That guy is so good. Awesome, awesome, awesome teammate. Awesome teammate. And uh, finally, Antoine Walker. Antoine Walker. One of those guys. Let me see. Wants to win. All right. He wants well, uh, to win. Anything you want to plug before we get out of here, Grant? No, I, I got nothing, man. I'm uh, <laughs> doing broadcast work with with Fox Sports covering the Detroit Pistons and having a ball doing it and well, uh that, that's pretty much it for me man i wrote a book called uh, driving lessons about four years ago oh nice where can people you get can it find, you can find it on my website grantlong.com well there you go you had plenty to plug <laughs> all right driving that is... lessons, if, you, if you give me a quick minute driving lessons is, oh yeah is life lessons driving lessons is a book uh, of life lessons that i've learned Throughout my NBA career, um, I have four children. This book was dedicated to my two sons, their oldest, my older sons. And I call it Driving Lessons because whether I was taking them to basketball practice or football practice, taking them to school, picking them up from school, they were taking me to the airport, picking me up from the airport late nights. Mm -hmm. Anything that we taught or learned of value, I taught them in the car. 
sure. hence the tune, the, the title Driving Lesson, where most people are sitting around the table and are talking about their day and talking about what happened and teaching this and this and this. Most of the time with me and my boys, we were in the car going somewhere. And we didn't turn the radio on. We didn't, we didn't watch the TVs and all this other kind of stuff. We talked. You know, this is what you don't do. This is what you do. And hey, that, what happened here? And I'm teaching them how to handle this scenario. And we're, we're just talking. We're, we're just having guy talk in the car. Like I said, a lot of, a lot of the life lessons that I taught them, we were in the car. Fair enough. Well, I will uh, throw up a link to both the, uh, the book and the website when we post this. And, uh, you know, I hope you... I hope that helps drum up a little business for you. This has been this week's episode of Tales from the Association. My guest was Grant Long. Grant, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this last 75 minutes. Thanks for having me, man. Anytime.